Section 56 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Edwards. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. Case Studies, Chapter 11, Part 3. Secrecy in the Radiological Warfare Program. The U.S. Radiological Weapons Testing Program appears to have remained formally secret until 1974 and remained largely unknown to the public until the GAO's report in 1993. There was a recurring tension at the time between those who wanted to release information to allay unwarranted public fears about radiation hazards and those who thought that publicity would create unwarranted attention and public apprehension that could interfere with the successful prosecution of the program. If there was a concern that public knowledge of the general outlines of the program would undermine national security, none of the available documents state this argument explicitly except through their classification markings. In May 1948, at its first meeting, the Noise Panel recommended that the entire program be classified secret, restricted data, the Chemical Corps' RW program was classified at this level. At its second meeting in August, the Noise Panel revised this recommendation to conclude that the existence of an RW program should be considered as unclassified information. The Noise Panel was responding to the recommendation by the AEC's ACBM that the Advisory Committee on Biology and Medicine urged that the broad subject of radiological warfare be declassified on the grounds that the subject appears in nearly every Sunday supplement in a distorted manner, and that better work could be done from the scientific and medical standpoint if the program were declassified. In February 1949, Defense Secretary James Forrestal responding to requests for greater public disclosure of U.S. nuclear activities, appointed Harvard University President James Conant to chair a confidential ad hoc committee to make recommendations on the information which should be released to the public concerning the capabilities of and defense against the atomic bomb and weapons of biological, chemical, and radiological warfare. This high-level committee's work ended in October 1949 in deadlock without making any strong recommendations. Its report to President Truman was quickly forgotten and, if anything, provided the basis for continuing the existing pattern of secrecy. Among the listed rationales provided by the majority of committee members who opposed the release of further information on the capabilities of atomic weapons was the absence of public demand for the information. The positions taken by certain well-known and probably well-meaning pressure groups, they suggested, do not spring from any general public sentiment in this regard and should, therefore, be ignored. James Hirschberg, in his biography of Harvard University President James Conant, who chaired the Fishing Party, as the committee was codenamed, has observed, Notably missing from this list is any indication that they were worried that the Soviet Union might derive military benefit from the release of data under consideration. The observation of the majority that the public would seem to be more concerned lest their officials release too much classified information rather than too little may have been accurate. 
But would the attitude have been the same if it were known the government was hiding the information not from Moscow, but from its own people, because it did not trust them? How else to explain the fear that even a carefully reasoned statement might have a very disturbing effect on the general public and could be misinterpreted by pressure groups in support of any extreme position they were currently advocating? In May 1949, while Conan's panel deliberated and the Chemical Corps was preparing for the initial Dugway field tests, the Defense Department's Research and Development Board, RDB, addressed the question of releasing information on radiological warfare. The RDB's Committee on Atomic Energy recommended against a public release of information. Soon after, a joint meeting of the Military Liaison Committee and the General Advisory Council considered, but rejected, a drafted letter to the President, also recommending a press release on the RW program. Later that year, on advice from Joseph Hamilton, the Chemical Corps prepared a release regarding munitions tests at Dugway. The Chemical Corps' proposal for a release was discussed with AEC and DOD officials who rejected it, saying such a release was not desirable. At roughly the same time, Defense Secretary Lewis Johnson briefed President Truman on the radiological warfare program. The briefing memorandum prepared for Truman said that the planned tests posed a negligible risk, but argued that, should the general public learn prematurely of the tests, it is conceivable that an adverse public reaction might result because of the lack of a true understanding of radiological hazards. It also noted that a group of highly competent and nationally recognized authorities is being assembled to review all radiological aspects of the tests before operations are initiated at the test site. The reference in the briefing memorandum was to the Radiological Warfare Test Safety Panel, which was being selected at that time. In August, at the first meeting of this panel, Albert R. Olpin, president of the University of Utah, noted the risk that uranium prospectors might stumble onto the site. Citing Olpin's concern, Joseph Hamilton noted, While the hazards to health for both man and animals can be considered relatively slight, the adverse effects of having public attention drawn to such a situation would be most deleterious to the program. In particular, Dr. Olpin brought up the interesting point that most of Utah is being very carefully combed by a large number of prospectors armed with Geiger counters. Needless to say, it is imperative that such individuals be denied the opportunity to survey any region containing a perceptible amount of radioactivity arising from the various radioactive munitions that are to be employed. Soon after this meeting, Hamilton also proposed a public release of information, perhaps reasoning that a program that was announced, but played down, would attract less attention than one that was discovered accidentally. Hamilton's proposal was refused. Echoing Hamilton's concerns, the Chemical Corps proposed once more that the tests be made public, again citing the risk of discovery by uranium prospectors. Robert LeBaron, chairman of the DOD's Military Liaison Committee to the AEC, turned down this request, claiming the need for review by the Armed Forces Policy Council. The official silence about the prospects for radiological warfare prompted some public speculation about the government's activities, including a report appearing in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, 
a journal created following the war to give a policy voice in print to many of the physicists who had worked on the bomb. The journal had some following in the general public, as well as the scientific community. The report mirrored much of the analysis of the noise panel and concluded that R.W. had significant military potential. In September 1949, the AEC's declassification branch recommended that certain general information, civil defense problems, and medical aspects of R.W. be declassified. Details regarding specific agents and methods of delivery, however, should remain secret. These suggestions appear to have been adopted shortly thereafter, as AEC and DOD reports at the end of 1949 and into the early 1950s discuss some aspects of the RW program in very broad terms. The closest thing to an official announcement of the field test program appears to have come in a report for the first half of 1951. This report briefly noted that research and development activities in chemical, biological, and radiological warfare were accelerated and that Dugway Proving Ground was reactivated, and major field test programs in offensive and defensive toxicological warfare were started, but provided no details. The 1994 summary of declassification policy by the Department of Energy notes that offensive radiological warfare was declassified in 1951 by the AEC, although the Defense Department appears to have kept this aspect of the program classified until much later. The secrecy that surrounded the radiological warfare field test program raises two related questions. The first question is whether concerns over public reaction are a legitimate basis for security classification. Officials at various levels cited fears of public anxiety, undue public apprehension, and even public hysteria to justify keeping even the most general information secret. The documents reviewed by the Advisory Committee do not record the actual decisions at various stages to keep the field testing program secret. They refer only to such decisions being made by others. It may be that those decisions reflected other reasons for secrecy, or it may be that public reaction was considered a national security issue. This can be a legitimate argument when the program in question is considered vital to the nation's security. However, the nation has a vital interest in open public participation in representative government, and making exceptions to the rule of openness requires a high standard of national need. The second question is the same as the one raised for the Green Run. Can potentially important public health information about secret activities be made available to the public without compromising secrecy about the details and purposes of the activity? As described later in this chapter, this remains a live issue today. The raw law tests two decades of experimentation. From 1944 to 1961, the Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory used lanthanum-140, also known as radiolanthanum, or raw law, in 244 identified tests of atomic bomb components. These tests were critical to the development of the plutonium bomb, which required a highly symmetrical inward detonation of high explosive, known as implosion, to compress the plutonium fuel and allow a critical chain reaction. The RALA method, see what were the RALA tests, was the only technique available for measuring whether the implosion was symmetrical enough 
and continued to be used for testing bomb designs until the early 1960s, when technical advances allowed the use of alternative techniques. What were the RALA tests? Implosion devices use carefully timed detonations of carefully shaped high explosive charges to generate a spherically symmetrical inward directed shock wave. This shock wave in turn compresses the nuclear fuel of an atomic bomb, usually plutonium, causing it to go critical and undergo a nuclear chain reaction. In the Rala test, the plutonium core was replaced by a surrogate heavy metal with an inner core of lanthanum. Lanthanum 140 has a half-life of 40 hours, emitting a high-energy gamma ray in its decay. Some of these gamma rays were absorbed as they passed through the outer components of the implosion device, the degree of absorption depending on how compressed those components were. Radiation measurement devices placed in various directions outside the device would indicate the overall compression and whether that compression was symmetrical or instead varied with direction. The lanthanum sources typically ranged from a few hundred to a few thousand curies, the average being slightly more than 1,000 curies, and were dispersed in the cloud resulting from the detonation. In 1950, the Air Force flew a B-17 aircraft carrying an atmospheric conductivity apparatus in four radiation tracking experiments at Los Alamos. These four experiments were identified subsequently by the General Accounting Office and appear in the Advisory Committee's charter. A historical analysis undertaken by the Los Alamos Human Studies Project Team in 1994 identified three of these experiments in which the environmental release of radiation was incidental to the experiment as part of the series of 244 intentional releases mentioned above. The presence of the tracking aircraft is all that distinguishes the three in the advisory committee's charter from the other 241. The Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory was established in 1943 as the Atomic Bomb Design Center for the Manhattan Project on a mesa overlooking the Rio Grande Valley about 40 miles northwest of Santa Fe, New Mexico. The RALA tests were conducted in Bayou Canyon, roughly three miles east of the town of Los Alamos, which grew up next to the lab. Although radioactive clouds from the RALA tests occasionally blew back toward the town, the prevailing winds usually blew those clouds over sparsely populated regions to the north and east. Aside from a small construction trailer park, and a pumice quarry within three miles, the nearest population center was the San Ildefenso Pueblo, roughly eight miles downwind of the test site in the Rio Grande Valley. Several Pueblo Indian and Spanish-speaking communities lie within 12 miles of Los Alamos. Risks to the Public Concerns over risks to the public arose at the beginning of the RALA program. In the early years, Los Alamos planners and health physicists worried that the detonations could cause some contamination in areas outside the test site, such as the construction trailer park and nearby hiking trails. As the RALA program continued, several patterns of public safety practices developed. Initially, the principal way to protect people was to keep them out of the immediate test areas, but in later years it became the practice to test only when the weather was favorable and later still to survey surrounding roads to detect whether contamination had reached hazardous levels. Perhaps because early atmospheric monitoring had produced only negative results, 
and because surveys in Los Alamos had indicated only minimal levels of contamination, ground contamination was not believed to be a significant problem at first. Environmental surveys after RALA tests indicated significant contamination at some locations within three miles of the release, but not at greater distances. This observation and the opening of a pumice quarry within three miles of Bayou Canyon led to intensive studies of fallout from the RALA tests in 1949 and 1950. These studies led Los Alamos to conclude that any area which is two miles or more from the firing point may be regarded as a non-hazardous area. As a result of these studies, Los Alamos restricted RALA testing to take place only when the winds were blowing away from the town and laboratory of Los Alamos. Systematic weather forecasting, therefore, began only in 1949, after more than 120 tests had been carried out, and maintaining the capability to forecast wind conditions for these tests remained an important requirement over the years. The meteorological constraints presumably reduced the radiation exposures in Los Alamos itself. Exposures in more distant communities, while probably more frequent, remained lower than Los Alamos. At the Advisory Committee's public meeting in Santa Fe on January 20, 1995, however, Los Alamos activist Tyler Mercier commented that most of the shots were fired when the wind was blowing to the northeast. At this point in time, that's where most of the population of this region lived. I mean, half of it is Spanish and half of it Native American. Mercier concluded that there appears to be a callous disregard for the well-being and lives of the Spanish and Native Americans in our community. The RALA tests were suspended from July 1950 to March 1952. Routine radiological survey procedures were put into place when testing resumed. Surveyors would drive along roads in three sectors, monitoring radiation hazards. Readings were typically below 1 millirad per hour, but reached levels of up to 15 millirad per hour at nearby locations and up to 3 millirad per hour at distances of several miles. Readings in excess of 6 millirad per hour required further action, including possible road closure. If the surveyors detected significant levels, they would continue monitoring in the next canyon downwind. On at least one occasion, ground contamination at relatively large distances from Los Alamos led monitors to extend their survey to a nearby town, Espanola, where they detected no radioactivity. The RALA tests were understood from the beginning to be hazardous, but they were also critical to the design of nuclear weapons. Los Alamos officials took significant steps to understand and limit those risks. On at least two occasions, in late 1946 and from 1950 to 1952, they suspended testing amid questions about the continuing need and decided to continue testing. When the RALA test finally ended in 1961, an alternative means of obtaining needed information had become available. Risks to workers. From the beginning, the RALA tests also raised concerns over hazards to workers, particularly the chemists, in spite of elaborate measures adopted to limit these chemists' radiation exposures. Lanthanum-140, with a half-life of 40 hours, is itself the decay product of barium-140, which was separated from spent reactor fuel at Oak Ridge, 
or Idaho National Engineering Laboratory in later years, and transported in heavily shielded containers to Los Alamos. There, chemists would periodically separate out the highly radioactive lanthanum for use in the implosion tests. Soon after testing began on September 21, 1944, the RALA program posed a puzzle for radiation safety. On October 16th, Louis Hempelman, director of the Health Division at Los Alamos, wrote to Manhattan Project Medical Director Stafford Warren about blood changes observed in the chemists working on the most recent RALA test. It looks now as though I was too excited about the blood changes, but at that time, it seemed to me to be such a clear-cut case of cause and effect that I thought the measurements of dosage must have been incorrect. Now I feel reasonably certain of the dosage. It was a case where risk was taken knowingly and willingly because it seemed necessary for the project. It is my feeling that it should be the decision of the director whether or not risks of this type should be taken. In August 1946, Hempelmann termed the exposures of personnel in the chemical group excessive and recommended that no more RALA shots be attempted until replacements are obtained for each member of this team. The tests were suspended temporarily because of overexposure of personnel to radiation. Los Alamos was faced with the alternative of increasing its staff so that individual exposures could be reduced or shutting work down until safety measures were installed. RALA testing resumed in December 1946 after a review to determine whether it was still necessary, but no documents are available to determine whether safety procedures or staffing were changed. What did change was that researchers began a formal study of the relationship between the radiation exposures and blood counts of the Bayou Canyon chemists. The chemists depressed white blood counts, lymphopenia, presumably the same changes noted two years earlier, posed a puzzle that continued for at least a decade, resulting in three scientific reports. In 1954, Thomas Shipman, who had replaced Hempelman as health division director, wrote to the AEC that, The blood counts were done with extreme care, and we are satisfied that the changes in counts are actual and not imaginary. It is our belief, however, that they don't mean anything. If they do mean anything, we don't know what it is. The cause of these blood effects remains uncertain. The reported doses of roughly 10 rad per year are well below levels expected to produce any detectable blood changes, a fact that was known by 1950. While it is possible the effect could have been due to undetected internal contamination, a more likely explanation may be that the chemists were exposed to chemical compounds that produced the observed blood changes. It appears that in the latter part of the 1940s, some Los Alamos officials worried about the possible consequences of publicly releasing data on health effects, including those related to the chemists. A 1946 internal Los Alamos memo records that Dr. Oppenheimer asked that all reports on health problems be separately classified and issued at his request. The author of the memo indicated his belief that the purpose was to safeguard the project against being sued by people claiming to have been damaged. Two years later, Norman Knowlton, a Los Alamos hematologist, reported on the blood changes in 10 workers at the lab. A 1948 memo from the AEC's insurance branch argued that releasing this report on blood counts could have 
a shattering effect on the morale of the employees if they became aware that there was substantial reason to question the standards of safety under which they are working, and concluded that the question of making this document public should be given very careful study. The report was not classified, however, though later reports were stamped official use only. While the remaining information on the Los Alamos chemists is fragmentary, the experience raises an enduring question. What are the obligations of the government and its contractors to notify and protect employees whose work may expose them to continuing hazards, even when the risk is known to be small or is uncertain? As is discussed in Chapter 12, during the same period, issues of worker protection and notification were raised much more starkly in the case of the uranium miners who were placed at significant risk, a risk they had not knowingly and willingly taken. Informing the Public Although many in Los Alamos, those who worked on bomb design, knew of the RALA program and its potential hazards, there is no indication of any discussion with other workers or local communities. For example, from the mid-1940s to the mid-1950s, Many Pueblo people who may not have been informed worked at the lab as day laborers, domestics, and manufacturers of detonators. The first public mention appears to have come in 1963 when the Los Alamos Laboratory Newsletter printed an article describing the cleanup of Bayou Canyon. Los Alamos reports that its first concerted efforts to tell the Pueblo people about the RALA program did not occur until 1994 when Los Alamos began its review of the RALA program. Representatives of the Pueblos near Los Alamos most likely to be affected by the RALA tests have complained about past and continuing failures of laboratory officials to communicate with Pueblo workers or communities. Recent efforts at Los Alamos to undo this legacy of secrecy have created a continuing sense of frustration. Pueblo representatives state that information and other relations with the lab are still too tightly controlled to be trusted completely. It is difficult for any outsider to appreciate fully the unique cultural and religious viewpoint from which the Pueblo Indians perceive the effects of environmental releases. In addition to having several holy sites located near Los Alamos, the Pueblo have a deep respect for the land which appears to have been violated by many of the activities at Los Alamos. The Pueblo continued to rely to some degree for the basic necessities of food, heat, and shelter on plants, animals, and the earth, and they suspect that they may be at added risk of exposure to radioactivity in the environment. George Voles, a Los Alamos physician who was at the lab during some of the RALA tests, told the advisory committee, as far as I know, there was not much communication going on with the people in the area, and that, in retrospect, was a mistake. As a result of these failures of communication, Los Alamos now faces a difficult challenge, five decades later, of attempting to establish trust with neighboring communities that have become more suspicious because of what they have learned. Here, as in Hanford, credibility is the casualty of silence and secrecy. End of section 56